This is James Menifee from the Yukon, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. And all of a sudden I get slammed on the side by this wall of snow, this wind slab had broken above. All those human factors that typically cliche that came together and, and slapped us. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your Canadian correspondent, Wes Gregg. I'm excited to be contributing to every third Thursday of the podcast. The Avalanche Hour is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. Well, here we are in the middle of March. I know I've been extremely busy in an effort to keep my mind active and remain positive as this pandemic continues. Between my full-time career, two very active young lads, and trying to navigate gaining the experience required to enter into the professional world of avalanche work, this season has just flown by. There are many challenges to overcome when looking for mentorship opportunities in the industry. But the more I discuss these options with professionals, the more I realize that everyone in the field has been there. Someone who is no stranger to not only a busy family life, but also the challenges of gaining the experience and mentorship in a remote area is my next guest, James Minifee. I met James initially when he was one of our guides at Soul Mountain Lodge. My wife and I then later had him as our instructor in the AST2 course. James is a wealth of knowledge, humble, and a hell of a skier. He's now a Yukoner forecasting for Avalanche Canada in the area, as well as running his own guiding operation. But enough of my chatter. Let's get to my conversation in December with James Minifee. How's it going? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Nice. What are things looking like for you up there? Oh, my God. We're on the tail end of like a 100-year event. So we're, we got, I think, 100 centimeters in White Pass, which is, you know, it's a couple hours. It's where we do most of our backcountry skiing. But this started snowing. Yeah, midnight on December 1st, and uh, I think our HS went up about 110 centimeters in Holy 36 God. hours. Oh, it's ridiculous. So full full closure, we're kind of waiting to, to get out there and, and see what's happening. The problem is it kind of finished warm, so uh, we're kind of waiting to see what, what it's what it's like out there. But, you know, like yeah. Haynes and Skagway, you know, those two coastal Alaska towns just got hammered. I think Haynes got 150 millimeters of water or something like that. Oh, wow. That's insane. Why don't you tell us who you are and what you're currently involved in? Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, my name is James Minifee. I'm, uh, I live in the Yukon now. I, I grew up in Fernie, I, at Fernie, BC. So I was a, I was a mountain kid. Um, I currently work as a guide. I have a small company up here. We do an adventure tourism company, specialize in backcountry skiing, mostly um, a guide with the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides, a ski guide, and, and also a hiking guide. So I do base camp based um, adventures. So ski touring and ski mountaineering adventures. And what else do we do? I come down and I get my powder fix in the Monashies doing lodge based stuff. Um, I'll pretty much go wherever people want to go skiing. Um, I also teach a bunch of avalanche courses, uh, mostly in the Yukon now. Um, 
it's really picked up over the years. And uh, I also work for, for Avalanche Canada up in the Yukon. So I'm, 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 I kind of lead our field team up here. So we have a, a field team of three guys up here and we, and we, uh, we produce a forecast with Avalanche Canada out of Revelstoke for, for the White Pass and other parts of kind of Northwest BC. So that's what I've been up to over the last number of years I've been, been up in the Yukon. Yeah, right on. And that's kind of one of the things that we'll definitely have to dive into. So you got started skiing in Fernie and uh, ski racing, freestyle, or just all around skiing. What was uh, the young James's life like in a little mountain town? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was, it was great. I mean, you take some of it for granted. Um, I wasn't a ski racer. My, my wife, my wife was a ski racer for sure. Um, you know, Fernie was one of those places where, you know, you did, you did all sorts of things, but I think everyone ended up learning, learning to ski at some point in their, in their life. So for me, it was mostly just hanging out at the hill and um, skiing with, skiing with friends, you know, any chance you got, you know, as we got older, we'd, we'd kind of creep out of bounds. I know we'd get up, we'd, we'd get out there with, with a bunch of our ski buddies and we'd, we'd, uh, for those that, that, that ski in Fernie, I mean, back then before the expansion, um, you know, Timber Bowl and Siberia Bowl and Curry didn't even exist. Like once you left Easter and hiked over the saddle, uh, you were in the backcountry, and that was something amazing, amazing for us, right? We'd put in a big traverse across the bowl and disappear back there, and um, and, and you were back there. That's pretty cool. So then, at what point in your formative years there did you decide, you know what, I'm going to make a go at mountain guiding and even at skiing as a career? Yeah, it's it's a tough one. I think when you ask a lot of people who who end up doing this, you, you get a lot of different answers. But you know, I've, I've been asked this a lot over the years, and I, I can't really put my finger on. It. I think the avalanche stuff uh, it it was something that in, that amazed me from a young age. Right, you're this you're this kid living in this mountain town, and um, you know, and you're surrounded by mountains, and and you have this natural phenomena going on around you, and you know, nobody's saying too much about it. It's just something that, that happens in the mountains. And so, you know, looking up and seeing, seeing this happen always, always amazed me. Um, but then kind of life went on and I, I, I ended up going and getting into a, kind of a career in, in wildlife biology, you know, and I, and I did a lot of field work as a result. And I started finding myself actually getting into a lot of avalanche terrain as, as a biologist. And um, that, that's really what triggered um, the need and, and more of the desire to learn more and get into the Canadian Avalanche Association's professional training program is, you know, I was starting to expose myself to avalanche training actually in a different field of work before I even right. really thought about um, getting into guiding. Oh yeah, cool, cool. And so how many years before you decided to hang up the field work in biology and start focusing on being a ski guide and yeah i mean i think as i was working as a biologist uh, you know i've spent my whole like i've been lucky I've, I've gotten to spend my whole life essentially in the wilderness and whether it was the biology work and i also worked as a as a guide in other kind of uh, parts of tourism so i was a fly fishing guide when i wasn't working uh doing field work i was a big game hunting guide so and i really started to fall in love with this with the with just the experience of, of giving people a memorable experience in the wilderness. So I, I started to think, well, how can I do this full time? And I, you know, I always loved to ski and I loved to ski tour. And, um, I got, I ended up getting into, uh, 
schema racing and meeting all these people. And, you know, <laughs> and, you know, taking, taking all these courses and meeting people, I started to have make friends that were guides and they actually did, you know, they worked in winter as ski guides and they took people skiing. And so I, I decided to go that route and, and, um, and start to figure all that out. And that's kind of what led me to the, to, towards the, the association of Canadian mountain guides and their training program. Ah, oh, cool. Cool. And then, so I'm just laughing. I'm thinking about you like in a schemo suit. Oh, you know, I wasn't, I was, I was more, I was, I've always been big boned, but I was, I was blessed with a big engine, but also, you know, but, but, um, so I could make it up a mountain, you know, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was great. I loved that sport. You know, I still, I still love it. I, I, I met a lot of great people and, and uh and it, it was good times oh nice well that explains that explains your endurance and your <laughs> and your speed right <laughs> so then uh, when did you guys make the transition from british columbia and decide to shift up to the yukon uh that was that was about 2008 i'd come up here for work and so had uh, so had samantha she and then she got a job up here in around 2008 2009 so we moved up and uh, I knew it was going to be hard because, um, I mean, there was, I don't think there was any, I think there was one ap- apprentice or aspirant a ski guide up here at the time. And he wasn't really active, you know, and I was thinking, oh my God, where did I, where did I come to? You know, I have no support network and I don't really know what's going on. I was still trying to finish up ACE, the ACMG program at that time and just trying to find supervision and mentorship way up north in the Yukon Territory was you know, next to impossible. So it, yeah, it was tricky. It was tricky for sure. And I think like, it's, it's interesting that you say that because even in the years that I've been in British Columbia and having been up in that area, it wasn't until right. just recently that you guys even had a forecast, it seemed like. So were you in on the ground level um, of that? No, initially that we had a forecast around uh, 11, 12 and 13, I think I want to say. And, um, you know, it was the Yukon Avalanche Association, Kirsty Simpson, and 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 the Canadian Avalanche Center at the time got a bunch of money, and they they got a three year grant to have a, have a forecasting program up here. And uh, Eric Sharp, another guide who's a guide up here now and still lives here, he him and 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 two other technicians started working, and I I started working on that program the third year in, so the final year of that program. Right. And then the funding dried up, and um, it went away. And uh, so last year um, with, you know, Avalanche Canada got a big, uh, got a big grant from the federal government. So we were able to relaunch that program with support from Yukon government. And so we, we rebuilt the program kind of starting last year and in, in the, in, in the year of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was probably a pretty good start until about March, right? <laughs> Oh, it was great. I mean, it's, it's such a cool program because we disappear the, you know, a couple technicians disappear out into white pass, which is between Whitehorse and Skagway, Alaska, where these, this big, beautiful mountain range is kind of the North end of the coast range. And you disappear out there for five day shifts and you, uh, you know, you, you, you talk about what you're seeing on social media and you help Revelstoke develop a forecast. Like it's, it's, it's a dream job for somebody who, who's in the avalanche patch for sure. So now are you, you're a field technician there for in that realm or? Yes. On... Yeah. One of the, I, 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 I guess my title is lead field technician, but we have a great team. There's three guys, three of us up here and we, uh, two of us are on at a time. And um, yeah, our big, our big thing is to, 
you know, we're finding different ways uh, to get get through to the public. So we're, the yeah. social media are, are big avenues, and uh, and then of course the forecast is still a big one. But um, it's it's a it's a really interesting region because um, once you're out there in White Pass, you have no access to internet or or uh, and you're really remote like there's no real organized rescue up here so you know we have a user group a backcountry rider group that's that's quite self uh, reliant and, and and quite good out there so um, to be able to add this as as an aspect of their decision making was was is great along your path like moving along I, a lot of times um you know, everybody in every career choice is faced with challenges. Have you come across any situations or any times where you were kind of really thinking about, did I make the right choice here in this career path? Um, you know what? I, I, I don't think in terms of the actual work, I, I always loved the work. It's, um, you know, that I have, I have a big family. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got, I got quite a herd up here and I, and, um, the the work I wanted to do uh, meant that I had I had to I had to travel a lot. You know, I had to uh, I wanted to do these base camp expeditions, and I wanted to go into the ice fields and and take people out there skiing. You know, into into the big mountains, which which meant two and three weeks at a time gone. So uh, I, I I realized, and lots lots of people in this these types of work and other work that um, you're gonna miss most out on a lot back home. And I think coming to terms with that was, was, was maybe the biggest struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. And then that, yeah. that leads into another question that I quite often ask, which is navigating that work-life balance. Um, right. I mean, and, and as I know, like you, you have a, yeah, like you've had, like how you put it, you have a, a big herd up there, but you're right. I mean, your wife is also works a, a very demanding job and I'm yeah. curious on how you guys manage your work-life balance yeah, it's uh, you know what I don't know if I have 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 an answer. I think I think it's probably mostly her. <laughs> <laughs> I think she she accepted what she what I was early on. You know, and I think lots of people in this work would would agree that there's a lot of kind of restless spirits and and guiding in this kind of work, and we all, we have trouble not moving. And and uh, I think I think we figured that out. I we tried to make an effort to raise kind of independent kids that could um, get along without us, you know, and they do, they, they, those kids are kind of wild. They're wild Yukon kids, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, run, they're running free and they take care of each other. So, you know, we can, we can be busy with work and we can be away and, and they can help, they essentially help us hold, hold down our fort. But, um, but there's also compromises, you know, there's trips that you decide you're not going to go on and, yeah. uh, you know, you start getting these bookings of people that want to do all this amazing stuff and and you just have to start kind of picking and choosing and, and saying no to some of it, which is fine. Yeah, yeah, which is which is not an easy thing to do. It's just like saying no at, at, yeah. at any point in your life, even right. when you're, you're out in the mountains and trying to make a decision and stuff like that. Right. Sometimes you got to eat that. But how long have you been running your operation as Skookum Backcountry in the Yukon? Um, you know, I, I know this because I just had to renew my corporate. Um, so I, 2013 is when I first started, uh, started Skookum and, uh, and I kind of been independent guiding 
ever since I came, I came out of the, the kind of, kind of running out of the blocks with the independent guiding. I, I knew it was, that's kind of how I wanted to do it. And, and, and I kind of had to do it because I was up here in the North and let's face it, we don't have CMHs up here and we don't have, you know, big organizations that you can become part of. And, and, uh, and, and which, which was probably, a, that, that was a challenge too, because um, um, I was never able to kind of be exposed to a big team like that, which I think right. probably hindered me in a lot of ways. Cause you know, I see a lot of colleagues that I guide with that, that were associated with big mechanized operations for a certain part of their career. And, um, um, I think it, it was very beneficial for a lot of them. Right. With having an operation in a place like the Yukon, what's the uptake? Like what's, what's the type of clientele? What, what are the people looking for that come up to the Yukon? Um, it's, it's, um, it's adventure skiing. Like, um, it's people that want to go to places that either nobody's been before or very few people have been. Um, you know, it's, it's, almost all the skiing up here is kind of big alpine, um, you know, alpine skiing, you know, glaciers and faces and open ridge lines and alpine features. We don't have in the North, um, a lot of tree line skiing. So it's not the place you come to get your powder fix. It's the place you come to get beat up by the weather and, and ski an amazing, amazing terrain. And, yeah. you know, so it's more of this, um, it's more of kind of a destination, um, it, more of like an exotic ski experience almost than, than your, than anything else. So I'm getting, you know, I'm getting people that are more, a little more adventurous, probably a little more experienced, you know, we're essentially, the camp is comfortable, but we're, we're winter camping. We're pooping in a bucket and, you know, <laughs> knocking frost off our tent in the morning. You know, we have, we have a heated tent, but it's, it's glorified winter camping. So I'm getting people that are, that are into that, like a little bit of suffering, a little bit of weather for the payoff, which is these, this amazing remote Alpine terrain. Right. And so now do you go out and basically set up your base camp for this, for the season or is it on a trip based scenario? Um, it's usually like on a trip based or maybe I'll do a couple weeks in one spot, but I used to do them. I think we talked about this, but I used to set them up with snow machines, but, right. but you know how that is, right? You, <laughs> you, you spend a week setting up a base camp for skiing on a snow machine. And then you spend another week wrenching on your machines or, you know, trying to fix, trying to fix them up to get them ready for the next trip. So I eventually gave up on that. It was just trying to keep up with the machines. And I had a client get hurt riding a machine and it just wasn't, it wasn't the right tool. So now, um, now we fly and we either take a ski plane or we take helicopters wherever. And I try to pick different places all the time. And that just reminded me of the fact that, that you're a pilot. So when you take a ski plane, are are you flying or or are you just uh, chartering no. a plane? <laughs> no, I, I'm a I'm a private pilot who I, I fly just enough these days to to um, scare myself flying alone. No, I hire. <laughs> I, I learned a long time. <laughs> I learned a long time ago that the best way is to hire um, ski pilots that know what they're doing. So no, we fly uh, we fly with ski pilots up here and then. Um, and they'll take us into the ice fields or, you know, it's best if you could take a ski plane because you save a bit of cost, but yeah. we'll often use a helicopter just because it can really get us right into the terrain we want to get to. So, um, but no, I'm not, I'm not doing the flying. <laughs> I just, I thought that was like, oh, that'd be, pretty, yeah, yeah. That'd be quite an experience. <laughs> you, you know, it would, it, it would be, it would, it would be, you'd have the experience once probably. But, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh yeah, I'm James. I'm your guide and pilot. <laughs> yeah, for the for the next forty five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. <laughs> right, on. That's awesome. Uh, now, yeah. so let's. Um, I- I'm wondering about if I mean you've spent so much time out in the mountains and you've spent so much time around other people and and yourself doing your own thing. Have you had any experiences that have humbled you or altered how you approach your way of thinking in the backcountry? I think every single trip. I mean, and I'm not saying that to be to be difficult. I think I, I think I learn I think I learn something every single trip, whether it's something small or. Um, you know, something big. I think for me, um, I haven't, I've been lucky. I haven't had any, I've, I've been involved in, 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 in one avalanche and it was, it was, uh, it was definitely an eye opener. We, I was training for, a, an apprentice, an aspirant guide exam, ski guide exam. And uh, me and a friend were, were heading up onto the WAP to, for, um, for some training. We, we really wanted to get some, some solid training in. And we, we arrived late. We were both working by that time in the field and, you know, quite a bit of experience between the two of us and we threw our backpacks on and we had a plan and we started marching up through Bocan. I don't know if you've been up to the Wapta, but you go through kind of a fairly confined kind of terrain trap feature called Bow Canyon that, that takes you up to, to the hut up there and wind was blowing. Uh, avalanche danger, I think was considerable, lots of snow moving around, but you know, we, we justified going cause we were, we were fit and we could move fast. We'd both been up there, I think multiple times that mm-hmm. year. Um, um, and so we went and we, you know, we left late. Um, my partner's kind of ahead of me disappearing around the corner. And all of a sudden I get slammed in the side by this wall of snow, this wind slab had broken above and, and it wasn't a big avalanche. It was, you know, I don't know if, if you saw it in a picture, I don't even know if you'd call it a size two, but it was a size two cause it ended up burying me. Um, I had an arm sticking out. And I managed to get a bit of a scream out before I got knocked into the creek. And um, luckily, my partner came came back around the corner, and he was able to get to me quick because I still had I there was there was a visual cue there, right? I, yeah. He could just start digging, and he he got to me right away, and we we got me out. And it was an eye opener, though, because there was I look back on it now, and I actually used it as a case study in avalanche courses. I don't tell people it was me until the very end, but you know, <laughs> it really it for me it it was the perfect example of of all the human factors coming together, you know, we talk about facets and we teach the human factors, all those things coming together in, in just a perfect, uh, perfect storm to lead to what could have potentially been, you know, if that avalanche was a bit bigger or if, if uh, my partner hadn't come back around the corner or hadn't heard me yell, it could have been, could have been fatal. Right. So yeah. um, that was a big one for me. And, and it was, it was also an eye opener because I thought I was, I thought I kind of knew quite a bit at that time, you know, and I thought, you know, you start to think that um, you start to think that you're getting smart and, and you're, 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 you're probably not, you know, you're, you're, you're not getting, at least you're not at least getting any smart at a rate at the rate that you think you're getting smarter at. So it was an eye opener in the sense. And, 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 and I got lucky and we got lucky, but, um, but for me, it was big. It was all those, all those human factors that typically cliche, kind of that 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 came together and 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 slapped us yeah no that's that's really interesting and it makes me think about a lot of times working in dangerous situations and putting yourself in in places where you're 
trying to manage risk. Right. And I'm always curious on how you guys manage that complacency. Like, how do you manage to not get complacent year after year, trip after trip? How do you keep it fresh? Right. I think, well, I mean, I think training helps. I think, um, I think, I think keeping yourself from, from being isolated helps. I think what I mean by that is, is working with a team and a good team, somebody that's a team that that's constantly bringing new ideas and new points of view to the table. And that for me is a big motivator. Like, you know, we've skied together a bunch at soul mountain and that team, that, that team down there is great. And I almost treat those trips like out of the North because I'm working by myself up here. I don't have any information streams. I'm, I'm going to places that, I've often never been before or maybe nobody's been before. So um, I I really have no one to keep me in check. And sometimes that scares me. So I, I I really value those trips to work, you know, with, with a more diverse team, like a, you know, we often have a gender diverse team down there and and a really just a team that, that can kind of keep, keep me honest and keep me in check and kind of keep me open to all the things that maybe I, I start to overlook when I, when I'm up here um, in, in this corner of the Yukon kind of working all by my lonesome. Yeah. What I've been hearing and kind of, cause I had a brief conversation, not a brief conversation, I had a great conversation with Keith, Keith Robine just a few weeks right. ago. And um, I mean, he's seeing like a huge uptake in AST courses. I had a conversation oh. with, with Craig, Evan off as well. And he, he was saying the same thing. So are you, are you finding the same trend right now? Up Ridiculous. Yeah. Ridiculous. I think I'm up. I'll usually do one course in December, maybe two, you know, so I'll pump 30 people through AST. Uh, I think I have five courses booked wow. for December. And, uh, you know, I have a couple, couple of buddies that also teach AST up here and they're, you know, there it's kind of a side hustle for them, but their courses are sold out. I have a waiting list a mile long. Like it's, it's insane. You can't, I don't think you can buy a sled in this town right now. And um, getting your hands on a set of skis is probably pretty tough. No, it's, uh, it's going to be, we're, we were just having this conversation, me and a couple of the guys from Avalanche Canada, and it's going to be, I think a, a, a busy year. It's the busiest November I've ever seen in White Pass. There's already people camping out out there and, wow. and hanging out. So yeah, we're we're kind of we're kind of trying to prep ourselves for a, for an extremely busy busy winter in the backcountry. Yeah, I mean we're kind of seeing the same thing, and and like I said, I, with having the conversations with Craig and Keith, and and kind of getting their perspective on it as well. What kind of clientele? Like I I think it's so great to know that those courses are selling out, and right. it's, it's so against what you used to see where people were like, no, I don't need that. I'm not going to go right. into avalanche terrain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, it's, it's a mix. Like um, it's, it's everyone from, I'd say it's, it's some really green beans, like people just buying their first set of skis to, um, you know, people that want to brush up on things. Um, you know, I think one, one sector we're still underserving and, and it makes me feel horrible is the sledder market. It's, um, you know, I do sled courses too. And so, so does my colleague up here, but, um, um, you know, by the time we, we, I like to do sled courses a little later on when we have a bigger snowpack and you can travel further and kind of go to go to more places. So by then we're getting busy and other stuff's happening. So, um, but, but I mean, the the clientele is all over the board. You know, you have people that really want to learn to, 
to decision make better and become more of a, of, of a piece in their decision making process in their group. And then you have, and then you have people that are looking for kind of that, that silver bullet in an avalanche course, somebody to tell them, this is all you need to know. And now you can go out and ski all those giant lines you've been looking at for, you know, for the last few years. So, um, so it's a mix, right? Especially at the AST one level. And then I do the level two courses in the spring and you kind of start to see a bit of a, a a bit of a honing in on, on the person that takes those courses. You know, they've kind of, they've been out there a few years now that maybe they've had a close call. They know somebody who's had a close call. They've, they've learned, uh, they've learned a good decision-making process or a better one. And they're, and they're really, they're they're really there to try and dial it in a little bit. It's so crazy how busy it is. And we're seeing it up here. and, And one of the things I've been trying to advocate, I don't know what it's like in the Yukon community with regards to sharing information within the community. How do you find that is up there. You, f- you find people are forthcoming with information or, or are people still holding their cards pretty close to their chest? Um, you know, for now, I think people are pretty good. We, we, in the years that we were without the forecast, one of the things we did have was something called a hot zone report. And, and Eric again had that contract. And, and one of the, one of the things he really pushed and got money to do was we, we essentially kind of, I think it maybe was a model that start was started down in Utah at an avalanche center down there, but they basically started to train a, a little mini army of a- amateur observers. So, you know, we right. have this mountain, mountain information, mountain information network and, and they would give outreach events and basically tell people, you know, what makes a good min submission, you know, you know, anything from a few photos to this, to that. And I think, and Yukon has really embraced it. So, and uh, we have one of the, I think currently even up to last year have one of the, the highest like per capita min posting rates, like of any forecasting region in Canada. So, oh, right on. you know, so it's been good. You know, we don't have, it's, it's, and it's it, like, there's no, there's no race for first tracks up here. I mean, it's the friggin' Yukon, right? Like when I say, oh, it's busy in the backcountry, lots, lots of days, you're just happy to see somebody else, right? Like you go out of your way and track over so you can say hi. But um, <laughs> so, you know, people aren't, they're not protecting their zone and they're not, they're not, uh, you know, is that going to happen with the increased, with the increased numbers out there and people kind of wanted to kind of keep, keep tabs in their zone. I don't think so. I think Yukon has seemed pretty good. So far we have really good uptake of the men and the men's are quite good. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that's going to continue into this year. I don't see why I wouldn't. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that we've been trying to work at in our, are you guys struggling in there? Yeah. There's not a lot of pins being dropped. Do you think people are, are intimidated by the men still? You know, when you ask around, is it something that think that, Oh, you know, I don't know any technical lingo. I, I, I don't know what to say and what's, what, what could I say that could possibly be of any value? Do you kind of get that vibe in your zone? Totally. And that, that's one of the things that I've been trying to advocate. Like when I go down to the local bike shop or when I'm talking to uh, some of my peers at, at work, when they're asking about, you know, going snowmobiling, I'm like, don't be afraid of avalanche.ca. Don't be afraid of, right. of yeah. just taking a picture while you're out sledding and just saying yeah. it was powdery. It was good snowmobiling. There was a crust, you know, what like a foot down from my track, that type of thing. Yeah. Th- those little types of things. So I've been really trying to get that message across to to my friends, and and um, and hopefully yeah. we'll start to get that that information in there, um, so that our forecasts in our area can be a little bit more 
accurate. Uh, robust. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, we talk about it all the time at Avalanche Canada and with the guys, you know, I don't think, I don't think we ever see a min that isn't helpful in some way. You know, that, there's the full gamut of mountain information network submissions from one single photo with like, I think you th sometimes you just think they forgot to type anything, but you know, that's all they wanted to do is post a photo. But even that one photo, you know, uh, we have forecasters in that office that have been doing it 15, 20 years, you know, they can, they can look at these photos and they can, they can get into these mins. And, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't think there's any such thing as a, as a, as a useless or bad, bad men when, when, when you talk to the, the forecasters in those offices and the people in, at Avalanche Canada. Right, exactly. So how are you guys utilizing social media, A, up in the Yukon, and then B, with Avalanche Canada? Um, so with, with Avalanche Canada, I think one of the, the, the great things with the, with, the, with the areas that have a field team, so we have a field team in the Yukon, we have a field team in, in the Northern Rockies, essentially, kind of, kind of in your neck of the woods, uh, they have a huge area and then we have one in the southern rockies and we have a roaming field team out at revelstoke and so we have the avalanche bulletin but then we also each each of those field teams has their social media channels so instagram facebook sometimes twitter and the great thing is we're getting to kind of drive those social media channels so you know we're <clears throat> we're giving that local kind of flavor to to what otherwise kind of pretty regional um, um, forecast, you know, Avalanche Canada is a centralized force and, and they do that down there for all kinds of great reasons. You know, they have a bunch of big brains down there in Revelstoke pumping out these forecasts, but at the same time, they, they have these pockets of underserved areas that they deploy field teams like mine. And we're able to really connect with, with the user groups on social media because, you know, we're giving them that local kind of local feel. They know who, we're, who we are. Yeah. You know, it's almost like um, down in the States, right, where you have these small avalanche centers and you know the guy or girl who's writing your forecast because you probably see them out in the backcountry all the time, right? So they have, they have a bit of a different model down there where there's a lot of personal touch to, to what they do. Because, yeah, I think you're right. Like the, having that localized field team just – it creates that community right. with, within that region. And so, yeah. so then you're not so disconnected. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think the, 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 I mean, I think Revelstoke still does a good job of kind of, um, you know, the language they use those, the, the forecasters are so great in that office and just the way they connect with people. Like often you'll read the forecast and you won't realize that they're, yeah. That they're sitting on the other side of the province. Right. But I do love, I do love as a, as a field guy, I do love to be able to teach a, or just a person in a small town, teach an AST to a group one weekend, and then, um, you know, be able to, you know, communicate them to them as a, as an avalanche technician, the next, and we all know each other and we kind of get a feel for how, how that person communicates and where they're coming from. So I think it just creates just a better, better all around, um, community and safer community when you have that kind of kind of holistic model yeah totally and i think the path in which things have gone over the years and watching the progression with the men watching the progression with the growth of the sport as a whole oh. and, and then have something like this pandemic create even more growth with that in mind with the way that uh, you're running your operations how are you managing the pandemic like how, how are you managing it with right. your guests and, and your students yeah so it's it's um 
you know, we have this safe six thing up here where it's so it's physical distancing and, you know, masks when you can't do it. And there's all kinds of, we basically, as an operation, I had to, had to develop a COVID, a, a COVID plan, a set of guidelines. And then, you know, you have, we have our chief medical officer of health, his office kind of looks at it and, and uh, says, yep, this is good, good, good and good. But at the same time, it's, it's really scaled back. I mean, tourism is just hurting. I mean, I, uh, uh, I've, I've kind of, I've kind of scaled right back to Yukoners and, and, and the locals have been great. Like they've been booking trips and courses and, yeah. and doing all that kinds of things. I had a bunch of BC bookings to go do some amazing trips. And I do this first descents trip every year where we kind of just pick a zone that I'm pretty sure no one has ever, <laughs> ever been to and go out and, you know, so stuff like that, it's hard because stuff like that's not going to happen because we closed our bubble travel bubble with BC. So we're pretty, we're pretty isolated now. And so it's going to be all, all Yukoners, which is great. You know, we're, you know, people are, are booking courses and, and booking some guide guided products too. Um, but it's a lot of, um, you know, no, you know, no carpooling and kind of common sense, common sense things, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, it's, uh, it's different. I mean, um, not being able to go do those lodge trips down in BC and, and uh, not being able to have BC folks and, and your, you know, people from around the world come up here is going to be tough, but um, we're, you know, we're make, making the adjustment and I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones cause I can kind of do that. I can tweak my product to, to kind of this um, instructional based stuff and, and, and people love it. There's, there's people doing it and they want to learn and that's, and that's great. So lots of, crevasse rescue courses and avalanche yeah. courses and you know yeah, all this kind of stuff so that that's that's how we're i'm operating going forward this season oh that's great that's awesome now are you finding with some of the students that are coming in that they still feel like there's you know you dig a pit and it's going to be like a go or no go scenario and that's going to be the end game on their decision for the day well it you know, and I was, I, I mean, I remember taking my first rack, though they were called rack courses back in the nineties, recreational avalanche courses. And I was that guy. I wanted just this silver bullet. I wanted to go sit in a classroom for two days and to go to the field for a day and then be able to just go out in the backcountry and do what I wanted to do. And I remember having that feeling and thinking, I don't know if that helped or not. <laughs> you know, obviously in the long run it does, but uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's tough because you do get, you know, we, we all go through that. We want that kind of, we want that, that silver bullet, like I said, of knowledge that's going to allow us to do the things we want to do in the backcountry. And, and I, I think, I think it's more important to kind of reinforce that, that, that idea that you, you do got, you got to put the time in, right? Like there's no yeah. way to short circuit that experience. There's just, you can't do it. There's just, just no way around, um, skipping what you learn in those, in those years of kind of building up. So, you know, and the more you, you know, the more time you spend out there with experienced people and the more, you know, effective courses you take, the kind of the quicker you can gather that experience, but there's just, there's, there's no short way about it. And it's funny. And it seems to be like a common trend there with that. And I've heard it multiple times in different discussions about, you know, yeah, everybody's either looking for that magic bullet or they're looking for the quick fix. They want all the information and that's all they're going to need. And, yeah. and experience is just kind of left in the review mirror. Well, it's true. And I mean, I, I have, I actually have every once in a while, I have a student that's just angry as hell at me because they'll say, look, before I came and took this frigging course from you, 
I was in the ignorance is bliss stage and I was having way more fun in the background. <laughs> you know, and I, and I kind of laugh, right? And then now they say, now I'm, now I'm always questioning my uncertainty and you talk about uncertainty and matching my terrain to my uncertainty. And now I'm always trying to be aware of my level of uncertainty. And you know what I say to them, good. You know, it's, it's, it's good that you're doing that. And, and yeah, maybe there'll be times when you got to rein it in and, and, but, but the, the best thing is that you're realizing that right now. And we all had to go through that. I was the same way. I, leaving that ignorance is bliss stage behind was tough. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and I'm not necessarily running around being like, oh man, everything's terrifying me, but right. I definitely put a lot of thought, a lot more thought into where I'm going what I'm doing. And then more importantly, yeah. I find lately, as you get older and you have kids and stuff, is right. mentally, where am I at? Exactly. Like, no, it's, it's huge. <clears throat> am, am I in the right frame of mind to manage this? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's a big one. You know, I, I, and I think for me, I, I, the way I kind of look at it is I start to, I always try to remind myself what, what my ultimate goal is. You know, I, there was this really good talk. We just had this VS, VSSW, our virtual snow science. Cause you know, this year was supposed to be our big ISSW and, and uh, we had to miss it, but they did a virtual one. And this um, behavioral economist from uh, Norway, I think her name was Andrea Manberg gave this talk and it was real eye opener because she talked about how, how, how a behavioral economist would kind of see this decision-making and how we will often see not skiing the line as, as a loss because, mm -hmm. because we've lost sight of what our actual, you know, goal was, which was probably just to go out and have a great day in the back country with, with some friends and um, get some exercise and, and then high five and go home. And so we, but we put so much into kind of getting to the top of the mountain, we, we invest money, we invest time, you know, we create a bit of a and an identity about ourselves. And then when, when we were standing at the top of the line, we're, and we're considering maybe not skiing it, we, we start to see that as a loss. And it's, it's, it was a real eye opener. Like it's, it's a, it's an interesting way to look at it. Like, um, you know, really defining what, what you're actually out there for. Right. Right. So how do you manage when you make a decision in the morning, this is what we're going to go do. Mm -hmm. And then you start climbing up and then the skies open up that summit that you've been wanting to get to that you can only get to when it's not windy and shitty and the approach is good. How do you make that decision or do you make that decision after you've already committed to saying, well, we're not going to do that today. We're going to go do this. Do you ever shift that decision and say, hey, you know what? We're actually going to go over here. Um, yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, I try to try to never make a decision until I have to. And I think it's, I think it's easy to get yourself a bit boxed in. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there's times when it's appropriate to, you know, sometimes you will find, you'll make, you'll plan your day, you'll do your, you know, you'll do your AM hazard assessment, you'll go through all your, your checks and have your meetings. And, you know, even as a recreational, I just hope, hopefully like you're, you're doing something along those lines and you might get out there and, you know, things are different than, than what, than what you thought they were going to be. And maybe it, that's the day where, you know, everything's lining up and you want to go for it. But I think you got to make sure that, um, um, you're not just going for it because the opportunity is all of a sudden presenting itself. You know, I think that's, that's a bit of a trap. You know, I, I think for me, what I've learned 
uh, over the years is to pick to pick terrain that's not going to kill me in case I get it wrong. You right. know, and, and in terms of whether that's the, I've gotten it wrong about the snowpack or whether I've gotten it wrong about my ability act to actually ski that terrain. Um, you know, I think, I think that's a pretty good uh, rule to go by if you want to, you know, kind of have a long career in the backcountry, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Thank you so much for taking the time, James. I'm so stoked that we could finally... Yeah, that's great. Finally nail this down, and then let's get together and ski real soon. Sounds good, buddy. Take care. Cheers, man. Have a great night. What a great conversation with James. If you want to find him, you can get him online at www.skookumbackcountry.com. You can follow him on Instagram at skookumbackcountryyukon, or you can find him with Avalanche Canada on Instagram at avcanyukon. And we'd like to give a shout out to our generous supporters, MND Safety, and of course, Ten Barrel Brewing. If you're hunting for that refreshing beverage after your I pray, head on over to tenbarrel.com, click on the beer finder to find the closest tasty Ten Barrel brew. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and head on over to the website, theavalancheshower.com, to stay up to date on guests and offers. If you like the podcast, subscribe, rate, and drop us a review. Then maybe tell a friend, tell that friend to tell a friend. The music in the background is provided by my good friend, Chris Kaplinski. And of course, thanks to Mike T for the artwork. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.